Father, we still our hearts in your presence, and we come to ask for the illumination and help of the Holy Spirit. We pray that He will be our teacher and that we'll hear more than the drone of a preacher's voice. We ask humbly that we might hear you speak to us from the pages of this book that you've given to us. We thank you that it is a living book, a living word, and we pray that its life might flow into us today. We ask, Lord, um, that when we leave here, we'll feel encouraged, built up in our faith, and we pray that we might leave with a spring in our step in the conscious sense uh, that we met with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Robin has been drawing our attention for a number of weeks now to the creation of uh, this wonderful world that we live in and the relationships that exist within it. So we've been uh, reminded of God's relationship with us. We've been reminded of our relationship with each other and our relationship with this planet that we occupy. Those relationships as they were originally created of course, were wonderful. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Adam to meet with God in the cool of the evening as God comes to the garden to meet with him? What a wonderful relationship God must have enjoyed and Adam must have enjoyed with God. Um, can you imagine how happy and fulfilled Adam and Eve were in their relationship with each other prior to sin entering the world. But sin, of course, has destroyed all of that. Uh, it has destroyed our relationship with God. People no longer meet with God in the cool of the evening. The truth is the vast majority of people live their lives as strangers to God and His grace, and they live lives that are at complete odds with His guidelines. Sin has had a huge impact on our relationship with each other. Uh, the conflict in Syria, which we've thought about this morning is testimony to that. Uh, man's inhumanity to man has been paraded on the screen in front of us in all of its ugliness. But the brokenness of our human relationships is seen a lot closer to home than that. How many broken marriages, how many people struggle within the context of that relationship because of things like selfishness, and self-centeredness. Our relationship with this planet is also broken. The earthquakes and storms that wreak havoc and which we see on our television screens on a regular basis are a far cry from the paradise that we encounter in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But as we follow the story of the Bible, the storyline of the Bible, as we follow that storyline through, we become immediately aware after the fall of God's plan to destroy evil and redeem creation. Messiah is promised, um, and that promise only increases and strengthens as you make your way through the pages of the Old Testament. Eventually, Jesus comes in fulfillment of all of those promises. Atonement is made. Sinners are reconciled to God. Redemption and restoration breaks in and, as it were, begins. 
But if we're honest with ourselves, the struggle with brokenness continues. And some of us often wonder, we often wonder if sin and evil will ever be fully and finally defeated. Now, I love reading the final chapters of books. I am a true Scot in that sense. I hate spending money. My wife can vouch for that. I love to read the final chapter of a book, uh, standing at a book table in an airport. It saves me buying the book, and I know what it's all about uh, by the time that I put it down. Revelation is a bit like that. It's the final chapter of the book. Um, The writer of the book of Revelation wants us to see that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ, and that He will reign forever. That's what the, the author of the book of Revelation wants us to see. He wants us to see how the whole picture will end. And what we're given here in the final chapters of the book of Revelation is a glimpse of the restoration of all things. Revelation chapter 21 and 22 are a wonderful portrayal of the new heaven and the new earth. But having studied it and having thought about it a little bit, I am absolutely convinced that when the day breaks and the eternal morning dawns, all of us will be given the surprise of our lives. Because I think heaven won't be, the new heaven and the new earth won't be like anything that we have ever conceived of. I think it will be infinitely greater than we have ever conceived it to be. Now, I listened during the week to a couple of people, but one of the person, one of the people I listened to was Don Carson. He preached an hour and a half on Revelation 21. I'm not sure why Robin only gave me 25 minutes. But he told a fantastic story, which I think really helps to understand what's happening in Revelation. So I'm just going to steal it straight. I'm sorry, Don. Um, but here's the story. If a man from a pre-Stone Age tribe in Papua New Guinea, if, if that man leaves that tribe, so when I talk about pre-Stone Age, so they're not, they don't even use stones on the end of their spears as, as, a, as, a, as a head. They're still using harder woods like mahogany and teak and so on, tying it to their spears. So pre-Stone Age tribe, and he talks about his sister having been in, living and working in this tribe. So if a man leaves that tribe and you get alongside him, you meet him, you live with him for five years, you learn his language, and then you go and live with that tribe and you try to explain to them something of the world from which you have come. So how in the world would you explain electricity? We have this spirit that moves along lines that are a little bit like vines. And uh, we hang these vines from tree to tree. In fact, actually, we cut down trees, we cut off all the branches, and then we stand them up again. But we, we, we loop the vines from tree to tree, and then we make holes in our mud huts, and we bring the vines through, and it feeds into a box with a little wheel going around far, faster than it should. And then it goes in, we have little smaller vines, and it takes it to a smaller box, and we can plug things into that box. And we can heat water without fire and smoke. You see the limitations? It's difficult to explain because of the limitations of culture and and language and experience. It's difficult to explain 
the mystery of electricity to somebody who lives in a pre-Stone Age tribe. And exactly the same is true of the new heaven and the new earth. The same kind of limitations exist. That's why these apocalyptic writers, especially John, uses so many pictures and symbols. He is trying to explain to us something which is unexplainable, something which is beyond our comprehension, something that is infinitely greater than we have ever conceived it to be. That's why we have the material in the format that we have it. Eye hath not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love Him. So why do I tell you that at the beginning of a sermon? Why do I tell you you've no hope of understanding the passage that we're looking at? Is it to frustrate you? No, it's to encourage you. It's to encourage you with this thought. Take this crumb of comfort with you as you leave this morning. Heaven will be infinitely greater than you have ever thought it could be. Heaven will be infinitely greater than you have ever conceived it to be. And what we are doing this morning is merely scratching at the surface of this amazing text of Scripture in this amazing place. Well, I have three things that I want to try and camp on. Uh, It's not the best outline I've since discovered since I gave it to Naomi and she put it in the order of service. And if I could go back, I would change it. But we're going to run with what we've got, a new creation, new citizens, and a new city. So we'll look at the new creation. We'll think a little bit about the new citizens and what their experience will be. And we'll think finally a little bit about the new city. So first of all, the new creation, just a couple of things about this new creation. First of all, the transformation, the old has gone. That's what he tells us in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The first heaven and the first earth, with all of its fallenness and with all of its brokenness, becomes a thing of the past. Now, all of this, of course, is foretold elsewhere in the Bible. It's not that we get to Revelation 21 and only discover that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth there in the final chapters of the book. Isaiah 65, 17. See, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. The sound of weeping and crying will not be heard anymore. 700 years at least before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah sees a picture of the new heaven and the new earth that God is going to create. The same is true in the New Testament. 2 Peter 3 verses 10 and 11 tells us, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So what Peter is telling us and what John is telling us here in Revelation 21 is that the earth and everything in it will be recast through fire. Now, there was a time when that was largely unthinkable. How in the world would you expect the rocks to burn with fire? It was largely unthinkable, but it's no longer unthinkable in our atomic world. What is being predicted here is a massive renovation project. John is telling his readers that there is coming a day day when the earth as we know it, with all of its greatness, will be a thing of the past. Rome, think about this in the context of its first century readers. Rome, with all of its military might and the opulence of its palaces in the imperial city, will be gone forever. The great leaders 
The emperors will be a relic and their authority will be a relic of the past. The great nations and their political structures, the stately buildings that we think are eternal, all of it will have gone. It will have gone like a dream when the morning comes. Sometimes some of us wish that our dreams would become a reality. Some of our nightmares we're not so fond of, but wouldn't it be great if some of our great dreams, I mean, I've scored some of my best goals in my dreams. Wouldn't it be fantastic if they continued? But the truth is, there's coming a day when it will all have gone like a dream. It's quite a thought, isn't it? One day, everything that I am familiar with will have disappeared. One day, I will find myself in eternity. And it's helpful, I think, to keep that in mind as you make your way through life. We are only pilgrims. This world is not permanent. It is all destined to pass away. One day we will experience the reality. Every one of us will have experienced the reality of the old having gone and disappeared. That's why Jesus tells us, lay up treasure in heaven. That's, that's why He tells us, lay up treasure in heaven, because where, where, where moth and rust can't steal and, can't de- and, and rust can't decay. Because everything around us is decaying. Here's the second thing. Not only uh, the old has gone, but the new has come. Restoration. As he continues to look, he sees that the new is a new heaven and a new earth. A couple of Greek words for new. One of them speaks about something being brand new in the sense of kind and time, a new kind of thing, a new time uh, when it comes into existence. But that's not the word which is used here. Greek word which is used here is a word that speaks of something which has been radically transformed, radically rejuvenated. So it's not that it will be new in the sense that there will be no relationship with the old. It will be new in the sense that it will have been reborn, renovated, rejuvenated, completely transformed. There will be some kind of continuity between the old and the new. But the old will be so transformed so as to reflect the glory it was intended to reflect. Second Peter 3.13 tells us that the new heaven and the new earth will be a place where righteousness dwells. That means that everything that was ruined by the fall will be repaired. That means that God will renovate everything that is characterized by brokenness, including our physical ailments. So when you go to the doctor and he says to you, I'm afraid that you're going to have to live with this for the rest of your life. Take this crumb of comfort with you as you leave church this morning. It won't be forever. There is coming a day when God will make everything new. But, but what will be new about this? New heaven and new earth. The thing that will be new is the presence of God. Look at verse 3. I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be with them, and He will be their God. So there'll be some kind of a… If God is going to dwell with men, there will be some kind of unification of heaven and earth. Earth will become part of heaven. Heaven will become part of earth. Isaiah 11 verse 9 says, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That promise will be fulfilled completely in the new heaven and the new earth. 
And the dominant characteristic of the new heaven will be the presence of God. And maybe you're saying, well, what's so significant about that? Well, for a first century reader reading this for the first time, this would have been breathtaking. Because in the Old Testament, God's presence was behind a curtain. And that curtain stood there to tell you, you can't come in here. Because the presence behind this curtain is too holy for you to enter into. You're too sinful to come beyond this curtain. Only one man was allowed to go beyond that curtain once a year. For God revealed His presence. Only one man once a year with the blood of a sacrifice, a bull for his own sins, and the blood of a goat for the sins of the nation. And fear and trembling he went in. But there will be no fear and trembling in the new heaven and the new earth because we will be in the presence of God. And even when you come to the New Testament, we don't really experience... I mean, our Christian experience is, is, is far greater than, than what they experienced in the, in the Old Testament. We're, we're not running to the temple to make sacrifices for sins that we have um, committed. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin, goes on cleansing us. But, but we don't enjoy the immediate presence of God. The truth is we couldn't bear the immediate presence of God. We would be consumed in the immediate presence of God, even in the New Testament where we're invited to come boldly to the throne, and no one dare make us afraid. We couldn't bear God's presence. And the reason we couldn't bear God's presence is because we haven't been fully um, transformed. But the day is coming when we'll be like Christ and we'll be with Christ. But the thing that I want you to notice here is that in the new heaven and the new earth, we'll be in God's presence forever. That will be the dominant feature. Remember back to Genesis, God comes at the cool of the evening to meet with Adam. We'll be restored to that. In fact, we'll be restored to something greater than that because God only came to meet with Adam. We will actually be in God's presence forever. Here is the wonder of heaven. We will dwell with God. Hymn writer put it so well when he said, My life's work is ended, and I cross the swelling tide in the bright and glorious morning. I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I cross the other side. Why? Because His smile will be the first to welcome me. Now, I'm looking forward to getting to heaven in in some respects. Um, I I guess I should be looking forward to it in every respect. But I'm looking forward to getting to, to, to meet my grandparents again who prayed me into the kingdom. That will be a joyful reunion. But I long to meet my Savior most of all. I long to be in God's immediate presence forever. That will be so unbelievably glorious that it is beyond our comprehension. So much then for the new creation. What about the new citizens? Well, John says, I saw a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. Now, John is uh, using pictures here, and he's layering one picture on top of another. He's, He's merging pictures as they come together, the picture of a bride, and then as a city. He does this back in chapter 5, where he talks about Jesus as the lion and the lamb. At the same time as Jesus is the lamb, he is also the lion. And here we've got this picture of the church as 
the bride and yet also as the city of God. And uh, he's merging two pictures. Probably not a great idea if you're planning to get married and uh, your bride comes down the aisle to meet you and you say to her, you look so beautiful. Uh, My dear bride, that you look like a city. That probably would not be a good thing to do. But John can do it. He's an apocalyptic writer, and he can get away with things that the rest of us can't get away with. And here he's merging these two pictures as he describes the church as both the bride and um, the city. Of course, both of these pictures we could spend uh, ages on. The bride speaks about the intimacy that the church will enjoy and experience and uh, with, with Jesus, her bridegroom. The joy of a wedding day is hard to surpass, isn't it? As two people find themselves enraptured with each other, and the joy and excitement of setting out, the merging of their lives together and setting out on the journey of life together, it's very hard to surpass the joy of a wedding, of a marriage. And yet that's the kind of picture that John uses to describe the intimacy that will be enjoyed between Christ and the church. It's interesting that there's no marriage in heaven. Jesus told that when he was, us that when he was here. I think the reason for that is that it will be fulfilled. The marriage relationship will be fulfilled in the intimacy that we enjoy with Christ, our bridegroom. The city, of course, cities get a fairly bad press. In today's world, they're full of sinners. And when you get lots of sinners together, you get, usually get lots of sin. But in the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, there won't be sinners and there won't be sin. And, and it, city, this city will be a delightful place to be because we will rub shoulders with people that share our passion for the glory of God. And this isn't just any city, it's the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that David captured, made the capital of Israel, the place where where God manifested His presence in the temple. And the church becomes the city, the place where God's presence is found. This is the significance of the new Jerusalem. Well, a couple of things about these new citizens and the kind of life that they will enjoy. First of all, their perfection. Their perfection. God will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, no sorrow, no crying, no more pain, because the former things have passed away. No tears. You'll never see anyone with tears running down their cheeks, no children with tears in their eyes, no tears because there will be no sadness. John is telling his readers, the sadness and heartache that you have suffered as your friends were brutalized and mauled for the gospel will be a thing of the past. No opposition, no persecution, you will reign with Christ. No death, no separation in heaven. The pain of standing around a grave will never be experienced in the new heaven and the new earth. We will be together with God forever, never ever to be separated. No sickness. Sickness is never a pleasant experience. It must have been especially so in a world where medication was limited and where pain relief was uh, fairly primitive. But in the new heaven and in the new earth, there will be no sickness and there will be no pain. No pain to wrestle with. Can you imagine the pain that some of these Christians suffered? These Christians to whom John wrote, being covered in tar and set alight in the gardens around Rome as human torches. Can you imagine the pain? Can you imagine for one minute the significance of receiving this letter 
After your husband has been executed for the gospel, there will be no pain in the new heaven and the new earth. There will be no sorrow. Sin has turned this world into a place of bitter disappointment, but there will be no disappointment in the new heaven and the new earth. No broken homes. No broken hearts. Nothing to cause sadness. Just happiness. There will be no sea. The sea was a symbol of turmoil, unrest, and even separation. If you think about where John is on the island of Patmos, you can hear the constant crashing of the waves around the rocks. What a picture of the consequences of sin in this world, a place of turmoil. But there will be no turmoil in heaven. It will be a place of rest and peace. I don't think that what we have here is an exhaustive description of the new heaven and the new earth But as we read it, it leads me at least to the conclusion that it will be a perfect place for a perfected people, a place where the consequences of this fall will have been eradicated forever. No more sickness. Sickness is a consequence of the fall. It will be eradicated forever, and we will be transformed in God's presence to bask in His glory. What a wonderful, wonderful prospect awaits us as we are Christians. Sometimes I hate how unsanctified I am. But one day we will be delivered from sin and its every evil influence and power. A perfect place for a perfected people. Second thing is uh, satisfaction. We're told, verse 6, that 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 those who are thirsty, the one who is the beginning and the end, will give to those who are thirsty to drink from the spring of water of life without payment. People living in Bible times knew what real thirst was. Water wasn't always in an abundant supply. But here the writer says that we will drink from a fountain that will never run dry. I think the significance of that is that our deepest spiritual needs will be met. This is the water that gives life, eternal life, life in all of its fullness. And John wants us to see that this is a place where people will be satisfied. We will inherit all things, we're told in verse 7. We will inherit everything that God has for us. What that is, what that includes, I have no idea. I don't think anyone knows. But the fullness of what God has for His people, we will inherit in the new heaven and the new earth. Can you imagine for one minute what heaven will be like, even with our material minds? God is the one that owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The gold and silver in every mine belong to Him. Can you not imagine for one minute the glory of heaven? But from a spiritual perspective, here is the truth. We will be we will be able to enjoy and glorify the God that we were created to enjoy and glorify. And that is the wonder of heaven. Here's the third thing that I want you to notice before we move on to our final point, and it's this exclusion. If you look at verse 8, it gives us a list of people that will be excluded from heaven. I find it really startling that in the middle of this amazing chapter about this amazing place, there is this warning about people who will be excluded, people who choose to live a rebellious life, people who refuse to embrace Christ and His salvation, people 
who continue to live lives at odds with God's guidelines and God's laws, people will be, not everybody is going to heaven. Not everybody is going to heaven. And I don't want to camp on that. I don't want to spend a long time on that. I just want you to note that. So there's a problem with the fourth road bridge. There's a danger that one of the sections might collapse, might not collapse into the sea, but drop, which means that it would be disastrous for cars driving over it. Now, if the engineers had saw that and decided, we're not going to tell anyone. We're going to keep that as our little secret. And, and that section dropped, and the cars drove over it, and, 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 and it was just mayhem. What would we say about those engineers? We would say they are rascals. Evil, we would say. What kind of a preacher would not draw your attention to the fact that not everybody will get to heaven? And I, you've got to make sure that your name is in the book of life. That's what it says at the end of this passage. Make sure your name is in the book of life. It's so important. Well, here's the last thing. The new city, verse 9. Verse 9. So again, he builds this picture of the bride and the city. Angel says, come and I'll show you the bride. So he goes up on this hill and he looks out looking for the bride and he sees a city. The bride is the city. And we're told a couple of things about this city that I'm just going to pick up on and then we're finished. Just imagine for a few minutes the beauty and wonder of this city because that seems to be highlighted here from verses 9 to the end of the chapter. In verse 11, we're told that uh, the light of this city is like a most precious stone. It's like a jasper stone. It's clear or as sparkling as crystal it could be translated. The, foundation of, the foundations of these cities is decorated with precious stones. Incidentally, the same stones that were found on the high priest's breastplate are the stones that decorate the foundations of this city. Verse 18, we're told that the walls are made of jasper. Inside of the walls, everything is made of gold. Even the streets are made of gold. We're told that the length of the walls, if they were to be measured, 12,000 stadia, you know how far that is? About 1,400 miles, 1,380 miles. 1,400 miles, let's just round it off. If you were to go from John O'Groats in a straight line to Barcelona, that's how long one side of the wall of this city is, walls of this city. And then head in the same direction east, then come back north in the same direction, and then head back west, and you'll be at your starting point. It's a massive, massive place. Sometimes I have this picture in our minds of tiny little place but it's a massive place. It's interesting that its dimensions are symmetrical. It's perfect in size. When you're inside the city, the walls are as tall as they are long. Symmetrical. It's a cube. The only cube found in the Old Testament is the Holy of Holies. And the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, will resemble the Holy of Holies because it's the place where God's presence is. It's the place where God's presence is. And isn't it interesting that there's no court for the women and no court for the Gentiles or foreign nations because those courts will not be necessary. No courts for the priests. Every one of us will be in the Holy of Holies in God's presence itself. The New Jerusalem will be a place of resplendent beauty and holiness. That encourages me no end. As I think 
about how weary I am with my own personal failures and my own personal imperfections. I often find myself crying out, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Here is the answer. Jesus will on the day that I enter the new heaven and the new earth. Secondly, security. I'm going to say a lot about this, but look at, look at uh, verse 12. There's 12 gates. There's 12 angels guarding those gates. We read about angels have the names of the 12 tribes. This is a secure city. The walls are 216 feet wide. I don't know what that is in metric. I'm old enough to have lived in two generations almost, so please forgive me. The foundations of the city have names, the names of the 12 apostles, because God's people from the Old Testament will be there, and God's people from the New Testament will be there. Walls were built to protect cities. The doors were closed at nightfall to keep intruders out, but there's no need for the doors to be closed in this city because it's a place of safety and absolute security. We will be in heaven forever, protected by angels, secured by walls, and without any threat of danger. Life in the first century must have been so unpredictable. You, you, you plant yourself in the middle of Mosul or some other place in Syria even today. Life is so precarious, so unpredictable. And then in the aftermath of that, you receive this letter which tells you that you're going to a place that will be secure, a place where you will be protected, a place of peace and rest. Can you see the significance of this? And then finally, let me just say a few things about the worship in this new Jerusalem. There will be no temple in heaven. Why? Because the temple was the place that mediated God's presence. You went to the temple to meet with God but you won't have to go to the temple to meet with God in the new heaven and the new earth because God will dwell with His people. There will be no need for sacrifices and no need for a temple. Heaven itself will be the temple. Nations will be represented in their hundreds. Kings and queens will come and pay homage to the God of heaven. Isn't it interesting to notice that there will be no sun and moon in the new heaven and the new earth. Does this mean that there will be no luminaries in the sky? The truth is, I don't know the answer to that question. What I think John wants us to see here is that God's glory will pervade the new heaven and the new earth. Regardless of what direction you look in, God's glory will pervade everything. And that will be the dominant feature of heaven. The Lamb the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. When I was a little bit younger and my kids were a little bit younger, we used to make long road trips and we had like a thousand cassettes and CDs that we played for them on the journey. And one of the songs is etched on my brain painfully forever, but it was by Mr. Salty. Heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. And I want to see my Savior's face because heaven is a wonderful, wonderful place. My old great-grandmother said goodbye one day to four of her children as they traveled to the uh, docks and got on a ship and left for a life in the new world. She said goodbye to four of her children. And as they walked up the lane heading away to the coast, she said to them, if we never meet again in the land of the dying, please make sure you meet me 
in the land of the living. We've only scratched the surface of this great chapter. Just know this as you leave. Heaven will be infinitely greater than you ever thought it would be.